Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, December 26, 2022. This year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero. We've been planning this to be our last episode of the year for a while now. I've been, for some reason, picturing you, Guy, riding the Port Clinton walleye as it drops on New Year's (laughs) Eve and doing like a live show from the fish where I ask you questions. So I was hoping you could humor me and pretend that you're coming to us from Ohio and how you'd introduce this fish. Huh. Okay. All right. Let me think about that. That's quite a proposition there. Let's see. All right, so I'd be up there. I'd be straddling the fish. I'd be in between the first and the second dorsal fins. I'd be holding on to that spine. And I'd be holding on for dear life as they lower me into the approach of midnight, kind of like Kong and Dr. Strangelove riding the bomb down. And I'd say something like, I'd be like, ladies and gentlemen, it's an honor. It's a privilege to be here with you tonight. And so we need a countdown. So Katrina, if you could start that for me, please. 10. Thank you. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, it's it's great to be here tonight. Nine. We've had a fantastic 2022, and we've talked about so many cool fishes, but we've been saving something special for New Year's Eve. Seven. Tonight is dedicated to the biggest, the baddest North American person out there. Five. The king of the Great Lakes sport fishes. We know them and we love them. Fighting on our lines and frying in our pans. We are celebrating the walleye, and it is an honor to be bringing in 2023 here in the walleye capital of the world, Port Clinton, Ohio. One. Happy New Year. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Something sort of like that. I mean, no disrespect to any of the towns like Garrison or Gladstone or Linwood or Ray or Baudet or any other walleye capital of the world out there. I know there's a whole bunch. There's some good articles written about that out there. It's one of these iconic fishes that people have a lot of pride in. There's like at least five cities that call themselves the walleye capital of the world. Mm. And... What's the most recognized one of those, do you know? Port Clinton does the walleye drop, so I'm going to give it to them. I'm sure there's like three towns in Minnesota that are going to be sending us hate mail now. I don't officially recognize any, but there's lots, and they all have their own like sculptures and signs advertising it. I'm sure they all got all great walleye fisheries around there, but none of them drop them from the sky on New Year's Eve like Port Clinton does. (laughs) If you had this fish in your hand, how would you describe it to someone who's never seen any of those fish before? It's funny you mentioned that. I was out and I was fishing on the New River. I'd never been to the New River before. I I tried my hand looking for some muskie and then I gave up and tried fishing for some catfish, (laughs) both unsuccessfully, I might add. But rip your shirt off? (laughs) No, it it wasn't that heartbreaking. But uh, I was sitting there and I saw these two real country folk. They were bait fishing and they caught something and they're kind of down shore a bit. And so we're yelling congratulations and stuff back and Mm -hmm. forth. And eventually, I mean, I'm not getting any hits over here. So I start walking over towards them, just be like, hey, what you guys catch? And they didn't know. And so they brought it over to me. I'm like, hey, I'm a fish biologist. I might be able to say something. I'm thinking maybe they got something weird, like a freshwater drum or something on there. And they bring this fish over. And I'm looking at it. And this is like a 24-inch walleye. They asked me, oh, is this a carp? I'm like, carp? No. It's going to be further (laughs) from a carp. No, this is, you, you just stumbled in to one of the best tasting fish in this river because they're also asking me, how, d- does it taste good? Can we eat it? And so me, not 
knowing how to limit myself and explain things simply, I start going into all the details of how you can tell it's a walleye. And so I'm looking, I'm like, you see that kind of green sheen in the song? I was po pointing out the dorsal fins and stuff. And like, and you can tell it's not a sauger because the bottom tip of the tail fin, the caudal fin there, there's that white tip at the back of the dorsal fin, the first dorsal fin, the spiny one, you have a black spot. And you're not going to see that big black spot on the saugers. Instead, what you're going to see is lots of small black spots distributed throughout that first dorsal fin or like wave-like structures, which the walleye doesn't have. And then also generally looking at the body coloration, walleye are going to have a solid color. And now that could be variable from olive green to like a brassy gold color, but it's going to be more or less the same throughout the body of the fish. Whereas Sauger are going to be more modeled. It's going to be big models on it, not like lots of little modelings, but you'll have like black to brown and lighter patches on them. Kind of, you know, like a Holstein cow, maybe a little bit. <laughs> How'd they take all your information? They seem to like it. I, I probably <laughs> should have uh, uh, checked the regs. I don't know. Again, this is a super oh, popular sport it, yeah. fish, but I told them, yeah, you know, it's one of the best eating fish out there. Good job. You guys did good. For all you guys listening to this amount of detail on telling fish apart, I, I will give some background on when Guy and I first started working together, it was on a fish ID project. So we got the right person on the job for that. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so while I have I in their common name, obviously, and in their scientific name, which is Sander Vitreus, that also rings some bells for me. It's spelled slightly differently, but we know that Vitreus is the clear gel that fills the space between the lens and the retina of our eyeball. And the reason I bring this up is because walleyes have these really cool pearlescent eyes that give away some clues about their behavior and ecology. So, Guy, I was hoping that you could kind of go all deep fish nerd and share the fancy name for what causes that and why <laughs> this fish has evolved this in their eye. Yeah. So, formally, what this is called is you get this eye shine. So, if you're to shine a light... At the walleye's eye, you're going to get a reflection like you see in dogs and cats, and that's off of a structure called the tapetum lucidum, which is this array of guanine crystals that is behind the retina of the eye. In the retina, that's where you get your rods and your cones, and it's where you sense the light that's coming back through the lens. And so this structure, this tapetum lucidum, it reflects that light back out through the retina again, so you get to see the light one more time. And it just basically enhances the ability to see in low light conditions. And this is a structure that isn't unique just to the walleye. It's also found in the sauger, which is a congeneric, as well as over in Europe, they got another similar larger species called the Xander. And that has that as well, I believe. And so when you're talking about why do they have this? Well, it's to help them hunt in low light conditions. They are generally a nocturnal predator or a crepuscular predator at dawn and dusk. And so some people think they think of the walleye as being light avoidant. And that's not really the case. They're not scared of light. They're not harmed by it. It's just they opt to feed at these low light hours because they have an extreme competitive advantage yeah. over other predators and the prey that they're trying to chase down and ambush. So you see in, in conditions where a lot of people like to fish what's called like a walleye chop, when you get kind of more stormy conditions, there, there's waves bumping against the shore or in the river, and it causes the turbidity of the water to increase. 
And so you get this equally low light stuff. And so in those conditions, even during the daylight, walleye will start to feed because now they do have that competitive advantage. And you find in waters that are turbid all the time, walleye are more active throughout the day and they don't emphasize those dawn and dusk and nighttime hours like they do in more clear waters. I took biology in college and Guy, you're really schooled up on it too. But I mean, knowing about a fish's biology can really inform your fishing. So looking at the eye of something or the mouth or the fin shape or anything that we've been covering over these couple of years, I mean, it really can inform your strategy for fishing. So I think that's really cool that you can like look at the eye and know when are the good times to fish or just kind of start picking away at some strategies. So that's neat. And also, I mean, if I look at the eye, it's kind of like, you know, if I didn't know that, I'd be like, oh, that thing has like something wrong with its eye. It looks like a cataract or something. So it is kind of cool to like figure out what exactly is going on here. So thank you for that. Yeah, that is an interesting point because, you know, when you shine the light on them at night, you get that reflection back. But if you're just looking at it in the daytime, it does kind of look really dull. Yeah, Yeah. and cloudy. That's a good point. Yep. So I like looking up how big fish can get. And the biggest walleye on record I saw was about 20 pounds, which is quite a bit bigger than the salmon that I'm catching up here. And they're pretty big and hefty. And Guy, I know you love a good weight comparison object. So I looked it up. And that's about the same as it's about a the same as a twenty pound kettlebell. No, no I got something <laughs> a little more original. It's about the Thank same you. as a weighted blanket. Oh, okay. So. Twin size, king size, queen size. I, I, how big? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, cool. Or shopping cart was the other one I saw. I was like, huh? Or e bike. Oh. Speaking of weight, there was some controversy around this fish recently at fishing tournaments, and I was hoping you could maybe fill us in. Yeah, as, as one of these tournaments on the Lake Erie Walleye Trail series. And now, what you gotta know about walleye is that they're really prized as a sport fish and a food fish, but definitely as a sport fish, particularly up north in Canada and really kind of like the Midwestern and even like the North Atlantic sort of states. But in terms of fish that people target, people like their pike and their muskie, but super popular. Like you you think about largemouth bass and stuff in other parts of the country, like this is the top sport fish up there. So there's lots of money that goes into these tournaments. Like the prize packs that are coming out are in the five figures. You're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Whenever there's money on the lines like Mm -hmm. this, there's people who want to cheat whether that's for the glory or for the money, I don't know the motivations, but you know, th- th- there's a couple ways that you can cheat in fishing tournaments. One is to go out and catch fish early and hold them somewhere. And so mm-hmm. you're basically extending your time. Another thing you can do is you can artificially increase the weight of fish. And that's exactly what we saw happen on this Lake Erie walleye tournament. There's a lot on the line. Best a lot in fishing, and that's a big thing. People are just upset. And reasonably so. And they're just cussing them out. And because the guy basically takes the, these fish, he cuts them open, and these like two pounds of weights fall out of each fish. Hmm. And they probably had enough. Like, just looking at the lengths of the fish themselves, they probably had enough to win the tournament just on these fish themselves. They probably didn't have to shove these weights down their throats, but they did anyways, and they got caught. These days, you don't usually see walleye beyond, like, six years old. And so they just don't grow as big. And so so when you add two pounds of weight to a six-pound fish, and any tournament director worth their salt 
is going to know roughly what a fish of that length should weigh. And so when they're coming in 33% higher, a whole third higher than you'd expect. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, big controversy in the fishing world. And who knows what kind of rule changes, possibly doing camera monitoring and stuff that could play in future walleye tournaments. But it's big money. People are after it. They want the title of being such a good angler and stuff. Yep, for sure. What's the range of these fish? Where are the kind of like hot spots where you can catch them? So Great Lakes really is one of the hot spots, but they're found in Canada from like Hudson Bay south down into the upper Mississippi basin of the U.S., as well as over into like New York, St. Lawrence River, that area. So really northern U.S., north central U.S. is sort of where you're going to find it, north central and northeast. And then down south through the Mississippi basin, all the way down into places like Mississippi and Alabama and even in Georgia. And walleye have also been introduced to places outside their native range out into like the Columbia River Basin. I know the Columbia River has a sport fishery for walleye now, too. And then in Georgia, there's parts where they used to be native, but then they've also been introduced outside their native range into like the Savannah River system. In terms of closely related fish, I know you mentioned sauger. So that's kind of like a real close cousin. What are some of the other species that are similar and kind of how do these fish fit into the family of fish that they belong to? This is going to stay within Persidae for a long time because you, you think about it, within Persidae, Perca is going to be the type genus in there. That's the yellow perch and the European yep. perch. And this is very closely related to them. It looks like a bigger, a little bit more elongate version of the yellow perch. But if anyone can bring that fish to mind and think about the like two dorsal fin structure that you have on it, as well as the general body shape and those tenoid scales, that real rough feeling to the skin of the fish. The, the walleye looks very similar. Another closely related set of species within this family is that we've talked about on this show before is the darters. Now, mm -hmm. those are much smaller, more riverine species that really gets up into the riffles and stuff. So they're a little bit adapted differently. But again, you look at those fin structures, you look at the scale structures and stuff, and it's obvious that they're closely related. What about the, you mentioned the Xander. Which I think is kind of funny because it's in the genus Sander, right? But what's up with the Xander? And are they in okay. the U.S. or are they limited to outside of the U.S.? So they're limited to outside the U.S. It's essentially the European equivalent of this species. And I don't know as much about them, but they do get a little bit bigger than the walleye, which gets a little bit bigger than the sauger. And over here, we also, some places, hybridize walleye and sauger to make saw guys. Mm -hmm. The walleye was the subject species for my master's thesis. And when I wrote my thesis and got through the university, I used the AFS official scientific name for walleye, which is Sander vitreous. Mm -hmm. And when I actually went to go get it published, it was put in this sort of symposium book. And the guy who was the main editor of that is this guy, John Brunner from up in Alberta. And he is on this crusade to make sure that Stizostedion is the accepted name for the genus. Yeah, so the scientific names for these three species, walleye, Sander vitreous, Sauger is Sander canadensis, and mm -hmm. Xander over in Europe, Sander lucioperca. And so when it was originally described, it was under the perca, the same as the yellow perches, as perca lucioperca. But then it also along the sides with Sander as the Latvian common name. And he's saying that because that was never officially put up as 
a scientific name, a valid Latin name, when they broke it out, really Stizostedion was the first one that was put forward. And because zoological nomenclature is so big on priority and whatever was published first comes mm-hmm. first, that Stizostedion should really be the official scientific name recognized for the walleye and the sauger and the xander over in Europe. Okay, so, interesting. He makes a very compelling case. He's got an essay about it. I may have butchered that a little bit, all the details. I don't know because I... I care about the actual phylogeny. I don't care so much about what people actually call it. He's big on that. Fish names are so interesting. Yeah, you have the kind of Latin piece and then the common names. Again, we've covered this before. It can be really confusing. And I saw yellow pike and yellow pickerel as a name for this fishes as well, which is Also, confusing. pike perch is common, yep. sometimes yep. referring to the walleye, sometimes referring to the xander. And yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I also wanted to bring up the blue walleye, also called the blue pike. And I know it's unique kind of color morph of walleye, but that fish has an interesting story in the Great Lakes region, right? Yeah. So walleye, again, in in addition to being a good sport fish, and now when I say good sport fish, it's not that they're particularly exciting to catch. People have described them like (laughs) reeling in like a wet sock. They they actually, they don't fight that hard, but again, they're popular because they're They're a good food fish. Yep. That was the story of the blue walleye, right? They were super valued for that. On the Great Lakes, those are basically like inland seas in terms of like their size. And so they've historically supported commercial fisheries. And I think there are still some commercial fisheries that kind of exist up there, but not to the extent that they used to. And so you had this blue color morph that some people call its own species. Some people call it a subspecies. It's usually called the blue pike. I remember my seventh grade biology textbooks. They're talking about extinction and they gave some examples. And the blue pike was one that they used to try and, you know, hit close to home uh, because this fish is no longer found. It's considered extinct. Although every once in a while you'll see like a picture from something like, Oh, is this a blue pike? And mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to verify anything with those, but you don't find them like you used to, if there are still a few out there, but recent genetic work, because there are frozen samples has suggested that this doesn't warrant being even called a subspecies. That's just an interesting phenotype that's out there. That's different than like the yellow or gold version. You know, it's not bright blue or anything, but I would like to know more about that. If it is just this phenotype, is it something that we could bring back? You know, people are doing all this genetic splicing and stuff. And, you know, I don't want to go too far into, you know, Jurassic Park territory. I think those stories are kind of fascinating. And it kind of reminds me just of all the neat diversity fish have across their range and blinking out that diversity through over harvest or habitat degradation. It's just kind of sad to see some of that lost. It is cool to notice, too, that there is, even if it's not really its own species, there is cool intraspecific diversity that exists out there. Yep. I hear some rumblings of the potential for a new southern wildlife species. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Who'd you hear that from? You. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You got these fish, and like I said, it's mostly kind of Mississippi River Basin and then Great Lakes type things and then further north, and that's kind of all considered one species. But there's lots of these other fishes that have populations that exist in like the Mobile and Chattahoochee river basins, sort of these Gulf slopes that aren't part of the Mississippi. 
And so people have been looking at the genetics here, and I've been hearing the same rumblings as you, Katrina, that they're looking at maybe reclassifying the walleye that occurred down in like Alabama, Mississippi, formerly in Georgia, but no more, that are down in sort of like the Coosa River system and the Mobile River Basin. And so maybe someday we'll have a southern walleye. We talked about blue suckers that have that that range up north mm-hmm. where you have the blue sucker and then you have the southeastern blue sucker that's down in those other river basins. So this could be a similar thing to that. Yeah. In terms of what these fish are doing throughout the year, I know that informs a lot in terms of like when you're going to go fish, when are they spawning? What's kind of their general life hi- history? cycle over the course of a year. Yeah. So these fish, they're one of the first to spawn each spring. Really, they tend to go out after ice off. Now, they don't need ice in order to be able to spawn, but they do need cold enough water temperatures. They need the water to get down to about 12 degrees C in order for their gametes to actually develop. Now it's like 50-ish degrees Fahrenheit. And so that's why they can't exist too much further south of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi because the water just doesn't get cool enough for them to be able to reproduce. But then, so ice off comes, it's a combination of sunlight duration and temperature that cues them to spawn. It's a mixture of both that sort of gets the gametes forming, getting churning and right and ripe. And then finally, when the temperatures and flows are right, that's the final cue to actually go up the river. And these fish can spawn in multiple different places. There's lake populations. Some will spawn on reefs or rocky points out in the lake. Some will run from lakes upriver to find some like rocky bottom runs of the water to reproduce in. Some are river resident year round and will just spawn in the rivers. Some places that even don't have great spawning habitat. I've heard stories of seeing these fish spawn on like grass mats and stuff. But basically they're broadcast spawners. The males are finding as many partners as they can over the course of the spawning season. The females just kind of come up, do their business and go back to wherever they came from. (laughs) And these eggs are just kind of scattered about on the the floor of the the river or the lake and throughout the substrate. And they're definitely one of these R selected species. We, We talked about that earlier, R versus K, where no parental care, lots of eggs, they hatch fast within like nine to 12 days or so. Then the juveniles come up and they become piscivorous pretty quickly, feeding on like the young a year of the, I'm talking like within a few months, the young a year of other fishes and stuff. And will even become cannibalistic. I know there's been some people in hatchery systems where if you're not keeping these fish away from each other, actively fed well enough, they'll start cannibalizing each other and it can become a problem. Mm. But, and so these spawning runs will occur anywhere from down south in like February, mid-February to July further up north. And so that's kind of their life history spawning events and stuff like that. Okay, great. And then do you have any fishing experiences with this one? I haven't actually caught a walleye before. So I'm kind of curious what your favorite experience has been catching one of these. You know, there's lots of ways that you can fish for these. A lot of people like to jig for them. You control for them, catch them on bait. There's tons of podcasts out there, YouTube videos and stuff that talk about fishing for walleye that know a whole lot more than I do. So we're not going to go into that too much here. So I had just actually completed my master's. I was looking at these fungal infections on the eggs and hatchery settings and stuff. Mm -hmm. But and so I'd gotten to go down to the hatcheries, strip spawn the fish, stir every stir in the diatomaceous earth with the turkey feather and everything like that <laughs> down in the hatcheries. But I'd never actually gotten what? to catch one. Huh? You're not familiar with that? No. With the turkey feather? 
Yeah, I know. That's the tool of the trade. You got to use a turkey feather. That Lots of hatcheries do it. It's, I think even in the procedures of what I wrote up, you got to take this turkey feather and stir everything together. Huh. It doesn't hurt know. the eggs. Learn something so, new. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Hatchery managers, they're traditionalists. They have technology that comes from the early days, back when it was fish and fisheries. Anyhow, so I'd seen these fish. I dedicated a couple of years of my life to kind of working with them at the larval stage and the egg stage, but I'd never gotten to catch one. So I was having to present at AFS. And now this is the pandemic year, so it's all online. And there's an auction, a silent auction. And one of the things that they're auctioning off is a guided trip up on Lake Mill Lacks. One of the bigger lakes in Minnesota, really large and shallow for its size. I bid on it. I got the trip. I was getting ready. I was out in Iowa and I was getting ready for this trip. I was really looking forward to it. I had my dad coming out everything like that. And I decided to go catfishing on the Wapsie Pinnacan River with, <laughs> with my cousin and his kids. And this is where we get into in the channel catfish episode. I've graduated to just using night crawlers because you can catch so much more than catfish when yep. you're using night crawlers. And I got this fish on, I'm pulling it in, and it looks like a... You feel like a wet sack? Well, there was a lot of current in the river, so nah. it felt like a decent-sized catfish. So I was bringing it in, and it looked like a... My cousin like, ah, it's a big largemouth bass. I'm like, this is too long and thin to be a largemouth bass. You know how persnickety I am about wanting <laughs> these fish on my list. And since I never caught a walleye, so I'm like... Casey, get the net. I need this fish. And so I was telling him to do that again. So he's going down for what he thinks is just a largemouth bass. But sure enough, it was a walleye. It was probably like a 20-inch plus fish. And so I was getting ready to go catch my first walleye on this trip, but then I caught my first one out of the river. But I still went on the trip. Did you catch one on the trip? I did. I caught a lot on the trip. And part of the reason I caught so much was I was fishing with the guy who was the lake manager for like 20 years up on Mill Lacks. And not only in his capacity as a DNR guy, but in his personal time, he just keeps logs of all the fish, their sizes, and what he's using to catch them. He's like, okay, the depth's changed by two feet, reel in one and a quarter cranks, because we were trolling with crankbaits towards the bottom. And so he has this down literally to a science on how to target Mm. these fish and go in the right place and keeping everything at the exact depth letting the line out to the thing. And we caught lots of fish. We caught lots of walleye. It was a good day. We fished in the afternoon, got to eat some nice walleye sandwiches. You fried or what? How'd you eat them? They, they were fried, yeah. Again, we couldn't keep the fish. So this was, I don't know if they came from a farm, or if they came from someplace where you are allowed to catch them and have a commercial fishery for them. Yeah. But yeah, no, it tasted real good. I know some people like to eat the cheeks too. They'll sharpen up a melon baller and scoop out the cheeks. Supposedly those are like a delicacy. I don't know. But, fish cheeks yeah, are good. We eat the salmon cheeks. And they're tasty. Oh, you do? Yep. Cool. Yeah, so I don't know what it is about that, if it's just tender or what, but... It's like a darker kind of muscle meat. We eat them off halibut, too. But yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot of meat in the head that people miss, usually, so that's cool. Yeah. I think the Minnesota State Fair food or something is fried walleye on a stick. Ooh. Yeah. That's a good fair food. Anytime you put it on a stick, it's good fair food. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. We hope you've enjoyed all the fish we've covered this year, and we're really looking forward to kicking off season three. We hope you all have a safe and happy New Year's Eve. And when you're watching the ball drop, you know that it could have been a walleye. I think they have a live stream. Check out the walleye drop. Ignore that big wig, New York, hoity-toity stuff. Check out the Port Clinton walleye drop. That's what I'll be doing. Awesome. 
Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.